As we begin to turn to God's Word, please open up in your Bibles first to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy 26. From there we will turn to Acts chapter 6, and you will understand why as I read. The title of the sermon is Called to Serve. It relates to the ministry of deacons as they minister to widows, particularly in the church. If you would, beloved, please stand as we read together from God's holy word. I'll begin reading Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 15. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. So let's strive as God's people to hear and heed that word faithfully together. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who was in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and we, he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of the produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. Now please turn to Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thus far, the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Truly, O Lord, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our footsteps. And we ask now that the Holy Spirit, who has inspired and preserved your own word, would even now bless the reading and especially the preaching of the word. In spite of my sinful lips and our feeble ears, O Lord, increase our faith that you would receive glory and honor in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Does God care for the weak? Does God care for us when we are weak? And if God does indeed care for the weak, and even for us as we are weak, what does God do about it? Well, in many ways, that's what the sermon is going to seek to answer, and we'll just jump right into it. I have a lot to say about this text this morning, and not all the time I wish I had for it. So let's consider together our first point, that God cares for the weak. Nothing better demonstrates the presence of God among the people of God as when we display the compassion of God, and that in particular for the weak. In another book of the Bible, the Apostle James put it this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Truth is important in the life of the church, but is that all? Truth, is, truth that is not practiced in many ways is a fleeting vapor, an ungraspable mist. Acts 6, as we mentioned last week, reveals the beginning of growing pains in the life of the New Testament church. Thousands upon thousands have come into this new church in Jerusalem, but they were quite literally a mixed bag. As you see in our text, some of the Jews were Hebrew-speaking, and others were Greek-speaking Jews of the diaspora. They're called Hellenists, a word which simply means Greek-speaking Hebrews. There were people who had traveled some distance to come into Jerusalem for Pentecost, and among them, often unconsidered, were widows. Widows that also traveled with the pilgrims. Widows that were Greek-speaking Hebrews that had come as sojourners to the temple. And in this we begin to see something of the beautiful yet vulnerable picture that Acts 6 really is. To be a widow in the first century at this particular time uh, came with a certain, if you will, a technical definition. It was a little different than what you might imagine today. To be a widow in the first century meant that you're not only without a husband, but quite likely without children who could care for you, provide for you, and protect you. It's hard for us to imagine life before 401ks and social security and retirement plans, many modern conveniences that care for people 
when they are old and provided for them. In the first century, they did not have those things. In an agrarian world, such as New Testament time, families took care of families. Generations often lived together in the very same homes. Those who could work, would work. Boys learned trades from their dads. Girls learned skills from their moms. And they often lived together, worked together, grew old together, and died together. And so a widow in the first century, in many ways, would be a woman who lacked all of these things, not simply a husband. She would not only be alone, she would be particularly vulnerable, dependent upon the generosity of others, and even at times the generosity of strangers. And so for such a widow to travel to Jerusalem during the time of the great feast that we call Pentecost would actually say a lot about her. She is not simply a widow according to the technical definition that I just gave, she'd be a woman of faith. She is here in Jerusalem. And not only that, she is here in Jerusalem as one who has just now, just recently, converted to Christianity. That's a remarkable thing to imagine. As she travels, she would likely adopt herself to a traveling caravan for safety's sake with the hope that she would be provided for and protected as she too made her way from whatever city she lived into Jerusalem itself. But she had another hope, an even greater hope, and that was the temple and the ministry she would receive once she got there. Very important to our text is to understand the relationship between the temple and the widow, something I think we often fail to think about. It's actually much stronger glue than you may imagine. There's a reason why we read Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26 forecasts the relationship that God was to have between himself, his temple, and for the purpose of our sermon today, the widow. In Deuteronomy 26, Israel's not yet fully into the land. They have not yet built the temple. God is prescribing in advance what he intends for Israel to practice and perform later in time. He describes life in the land, when God would settle and bless them. He describes a giving pattern, even certain things that they were to verbally recite together as the people of God. You can imagine people generations later saying, I too am a wandering Aramean. I too went down to Egypt. I too was oppressed. I too cried out to God. And God visited me, and he saved me, and he delivered me, and he brought me here, and he settled me here, and he prospered me here. That's not simply the life of God's servant Abraham. It is the story of God's people. Deuteronomy 26 gives a command to Israel that you shall worship, verse 10. It gives another command that you shall rejoice, verse 11. But the life of God's people underscore, very important, was not simply bound to maintaining the truth or even just practicing rightly ordered worship. A heart of compassion was to flow from the heart of God's people just as it flowed from God himself. So verses 12 through 15 indicate that the people of God were not only to worship and to be thankful, but they were to express gratitude in particular by caring for those in need. And then God himself gives a prescribed list, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
Why the Levite? Well, the Levite was a priest among Israel, but the Levites had no inheritance. They were not allowed to own property. Their entire existence and subsistence was dependent upon the generosity of the people of God given to the temple. The sojourner was the homeless traveler who knit himself to the church for safety's sake. The fatherless were those without fathers and mothers to provide for them what we would refer to as an orphan. And then comes the widow, those who lacked husbands and families to provide for them. And so what were the people of God to do? Money was to be brought into the house of God, collected by the priests, and then distributed to those who were in need. Why? Because we are to realize that we ourselves are dependent upon our God. That's the first reason why. But perhaps even more importantly, because God himself, who refers to himself regarding his own attributes, holy, 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 he is called, is the same God who regards himself as the father of the fatherless and the protector of the orphan and the widow. The holiness of God and the compassion of God are not at odds with one another. In fact, in many ways, one is the expression of the other. To care for those who are in need is an expression of his love, his goodness, and his holiness. And again, as James put it, it's at the heart of true religion because it is at the heart of God. But in many ways, Psalm 68.4 captures this quite well and will serve as something as a bridge verse. Psalm 68.4, sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him, father of the fatherless, protector of the orphan and the widow, is God in his holy habitation. The one who saves, the one who is holy and dwells in the midst of this temple, cares for the weak. That's the point. And if God cares for the weak, what will he do about it? That takes us to our second point. He provides for his people. So in a certain sense now, more narrowly to Acts 6. When the complaint arose that widows were being neglected, God arose. When the complaint arose, God arose, and God provided. Widows were being neglected. In a certain sense, it would be right to say that neglect is a form of abuse. Neglect children, and you are abusing them. Neglect your spouse, and you are abusing them. The widows in Acts 6 are being described as being neglected, a sin of omission, we might call it. And why were they being neglected? Well, this is a really sobering picture. They were not simply widows. Again, as I mentioned earlier, they were new converts to the Christian faith. Though they were Hellenists, Greek-speaking Hebrews, they have now converted into this New Testament church that is already experiencing persecution. Among the thousands who have come to faith in Christ, there were also widows numbered among them. They had come to worship God at his earthly temple, but there were encountered by the Spirit of God that came upon them. And now they are members of the heavenly temple. Now these widows have access to God in ways that they never have before through Jesus, but converting to Christianity has apparently come with a price. What do we mean by that? 
Well, perhaps they had fallen through what we could call the gap of history, the transition of caring for the widows from the temple ministry to this new church. If the apostles were just beaten and had been driven away from the temple, what do you think is happening to converts? Men and women who convert to the faith. Widows who are dependent upon the temple and its ministry of generosity as described in Deuteronomy 26 and Psalm 68. What do you think is happening to these widows in the temple? They're being neglected. And not simply there, but they're falling through the gap between the temple and the church. Were they being cared for? The answer is no. It was not simply the ministry of the temple that was now failing them. In a certain sense, it was also the ministry of this new fledgling church that, though growing, did not have its act together. Like a church plant lacking administrative maturity, lacking office bearers to care for certain aspects of the ministry, they were literally falling through the cracks. Acts 4 paints this beautiful portrait of people selling their property and giving it to the church. Surely, uh, widows were to be among those who were receiving aid. But now comes the blemish in the text. The Jerusalem church was apparently showing favoritism. Notice the text does not say that it's simply widows that were being neglected. It was the Hellenistic widows. It was the Greek-speaking widows that were being neglected. Sin has a way of wearing different masks. Cultural pride can lead to blind spots, even sinful omission and neglect, and beloved, even at times in the church. They were playing favorites. They were caring for some better than they were caring for others. That's why the complaint arose. But God does not wear a mask. He does not show favoritism, nor does he stand by idly. He works, and he works through means. And so the twelve, that is, apostles, Matthias now being numbered among them, gather together the full number of the disciples. This was a large congregational meeting. They distinguish what they have been called to do as the apostles, devoting themselves to ministry of prayer and that of the word, yet they recognize what the church needs to do What the church needed then, I bet I could get an amen if I said the church needs now, was deacons. More deacons. Restrain yourselves. The church needed more servants, willing hearts and hands to stand in the gap and catch these falling widows. In the 16th century, uh, there were interesting nicknames for the men that bore this office. One of them, I'm translating somebody else's German translation into English, uh, it would go like this. The daily hand-reaching inners. you got to look up here when I say it again. The daily hand-reaching inners. Why? Because as the people of God gave, and it was put in a bag, uh, there were those that were called to reach it, their hands in, take it out, and give to the widow. They had another name. Sounds like a band from the 70s. The almoners. But if you've ever heard the phrase, alms for the poor, that's where it came from. They were the ones who were to collect the alms and then distribute them. But the Bible first calls them deacons. And it's actually a beautiful and noble term. Why? Because the very term itself, the very word deacon itself, is a reflection of the person and work, the holiness and compassion 
of the Savior himself. It was not simply God in the Old Testament who was a father and father of the fatherless, the protector of orphans and widows. It was not simply he that had a heart to care for, a heart to serve those who were weak and vulnerable in the world. When Jesus came into this world and identified himself, one of the ways that he did so was with the word deacon. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many in the Greek. Uh, There are two places where you could read it like this. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life a ransom for many. And what is the point? He was a lowly servant who cared for those who on the one hand might appear to be beneath him, yet in his mercy, humility, and compassion, he esteemed those whom the world esteems as of little value. He esteemed greatly and humbled himself beneath them. That through the giving up of his life, the true act of service that captures all that a deacon does in the laying down of his life, they would be lifted up and receive eternal life if they place their faith in Jesus, the great deacon of the church. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. This was his calling. This was his purpose, to care for those who could not care for themselves, to care for the weak and provide for all their needs, body and soul. And I want to punctuate that language there, uh, body and soul. Some years ago, when our church in Florida was getting going, one of my elders who had been there from the very beginning uh, had watched our church in God's kindness uh, ordain a number of deacons. We had eight. And this elder said to me once that he thought I got more excited at the ordination and installation service of deacons than I did for elders like himself. And I told him he was right, but not to take it personally. But I do wonder, and there's a point here I'm trying to make, uh, if we actually might have too low a view of the office of deacon. To, To tend to think of the church as sort of a corporate ladder, stepping stones. To not ascribe the dignity to the office that it truly deserves. Let me come at this a little differently. Do we imagine that God has little regard for our body and only great regard for our souls? There is a tendency for Christians to think that way. That what God really cares about is our soul, and he has very little concern for our bodies, for our material needs. There's an old word for that. It's called Gnosticism. An unhealthy pitting of one against the other as though God only cares about the soul and has very little regard for the body. What would the implication be of that? Well, you'd only think highly of those that do things like preach or teach or do evangelism and have very little regard or respect for those that care to the tangible needs of everyday life of the people of God. God cares for us, body and soul, He cares for widows and orphans. He is their father and their husband. He does not simply care about what they believe. He cares as well about what they wear and what they eat and what they drink. He cares for them so much that he gave deacons to his church. And he cares for us so much that he gave deacons to our church. Deacons truly are beloved in Acts 6 and right now gifts from our gracious God. And so what did they do in Acts 6? They picked out 
seven men, a number representing fullness. Something unique is happening here. All of the men have Greek names, guaranteeing no more neglect of those Greek-speaking Hellenistic widows. The men are described as being men of good repute or good reputation. They were men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Uh, This is the best of the best. This isn't the B team. This isn't the guys who couldn't make it on varsity, who've been red-lettered. No, these are great men with unique and distinct callings. Men named Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, and if I should dare say so, men named Brian, Les, John, and Zach. Dwellers not in Antioch, but in San Diego. And what happened when God gave deacons to his church? What happened? What happens when God continues to raise up deacons for his church? Well, this takes us to our third, final point. God causes his word to increase. A theme is emerging in the book of Acts. It's subtle at this point. It will become stark and stand in the center as we move our way through the book. And the theme is this, a theme at work in the early church and arguably even in the church now, and that is growth through growing pains. Growth through growing pains. The church grows as it not only perseveres through opposition, we see that happening already early in this book, but also as the church works through its problems or providential challenges. Notice the bookends of even this little text. Verse 6, the numbers of disciples was increasing there in Jerusalem. Verse 2, the apostles do not want to lose their focus on prayer and preaching. When I said verse 6 a minute ago, I was supposed to say 6-1. Sorry about that. At the beginning of our section, uh, the number of the disciples is increasing. When the office of deacon is established, it's because the apostles don't want to lose their focus on prayer and the preaching of God's word. And at the end of our section, verse 7, when the office of deacon is established, not only, and this verse is a big deal to me, the rest of the sermon is really on uh, that verse, not only does the word of God continue to increase, which is an interesting phrase, the word continue to increase. Is the Bible getting bigger? Well, in a certain sense, yes. But the language likely means that the fruitfulness of the word is continuing to increase. And a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. This last phrase has intrigued me for years, and I think it's easy for us to sort of skip over and run past that Luke kind of throws in here for free, and a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why does he tell us that? Why are the priests highlighted, and not only some priests, but a great number of priests? In many ways, you've already been given the answer. These priests, who themselves stand in the gap between the Old and the New Testament church, see this New Testament church now doing what the Old Testament church was called to do, that is, care for the widows. But there is something remarkably important going on here. These priests not only hear the gospel of God, as the apostles have been proclaiming it, they are now seeing the compassion of God as the deacons are embodying it. Show me, don't tell me 
about the compassion of God, you might say. And the deacons were showing it as the apostles were proclaiming it. Often, we reduce evangelism simply to telling, and I get it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But in our Bibles, beloved, the vehicle that usually carries the good news of the kingdom in the New Testament is showing. Jesus showing the power of the kingdom as he, as he loudly proclaims its arrival. As he proclaimed, the kingdom of God has come. He demonstrated its power. It's not only what you see in the Gospels, it's what you see in the book of Acts. That not, they not only proclaim the power of the Gospel, they show it. And it is what we see consistently in the church. Not only the church speaking of the compassion and mercy of God in the Gospel, but embodying the compassion and the mercy of God in the life, the embodied life of the church. So is it any surprise that alongside this ministry of mercy, the gospel would flourish? But that ministry of the gospel flourishes not simply through the preaching and evangelism of the apostles. I think it's almost mind-blowing, remarkable at the least, that the first martyr in the New Testament is not an apostle. Is not an apostle but a deacon. Why? Because what they were doing spoke louder than words. What they were doing spoke louder than words. Notice in Acts 6, verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And if you keep reading, they couldn't deny it. So the fight was on. And then, if you keep reading, don't want to steal my own thunder, he proclaims the gospel boldly. And what happens to Stephen, the first named deacon in the New Testament? He is the first named martyr in the Bible. And who is the first named evangelist? We might say in a certain sense, the apostles are uh, the evangelists. But if you want to get technical and use the title, one of the men in this list of seven named Philip One of the deacons here in Acts chapter 6 is identified in the book of Acts as an evangelist. And he leads several people to Christ. The priests see the compassion of God as they hear the gospel of God. They realize that the ministry of the temple is not simply coming to an end, but has found its fulfillment. That the Spirit of God that left the temple, and remember, never came back. The Spirit of God that left the temple and never came back has come at Pentecost. A new temple is being built in their midst, not with stone, but with human hearts. And these priests cannot deny the power and the presence of the Spirit of God among them because they see it in the church. They don't simply hear it. They see it in the work of of the deacons who, as one commentator points out very helpfully, did not receive the Holy Spirit when they were ordained here at the end of this section. They already had it. The Holy Spirit was already in them. Men who were full of the Holy Spirit did not receive that Spirit when they were ordained. They were ordained because it was recognized that they were already men full of the Spirit and of wisdom with good reputation in the eyes of the church. 
Beloved, when the church displays the compassion of God, it displays the power of God. The gospel is always on stage, both word and deed, bound together. I believe I've used this illustration before, but it's it's truly one of my favorite. Some have wondered, how did Christianity spread so wide and so far, so fast, the way that it did? And one author in a book entitled The Rise of Christianity makes the point that when the Romans went through murdering and killing, raping and pillaging, one of the things that they did was make these big trash heaps, rubble heaps, uh, on top of dung piles, and there they would discard uh, things that are of no value, including babies. And it was Christians in those different places where the gospel had spread that would come behind the Romans, almost like an ambulance, behind the Romans, and they would rescue and adopt those children from those trash heaps and dung hills. And then they raised those children in the arms of the church, and those little boys and little girls abandoned to death became the future mamas and papas, elders, pastors, and deacons of the church. And at least this one argue, argues, one author argues, that humanly speaking, the reason Christianity spread so far and so quickly in the first century was its ministry of mercy. The gospel travels on the back of a ministry of mercy. Where would the church be without deacons? In a ditch. Stuck in a ditch. R.C. Sproul tells a story that when St. Andrew's Chapel was formed, it was now a very large and thriving church, as most of you know, there were people in the church as it was forming, asking him to become the pastor, teacher of it. And he said, only if we first have deacons. That the ministry of mercy might be bound to the ministry of the word. And what happens when the ministry of deacons thrives alongside the ministry of the word? Well, what do you see in Acts 6? The word of God continues to increase. And a great many of priests and unbelievers see the compassion of God and become obedient to the faith. So now I want to ask my original question again. Does God care for the weak? Does he care for us when we are weak? Does he care for widows and orphans? Does he care for our bodies as well as our souls? And if God does indeed care, beloved, what does he do about it? You know what the answer is? He raises up deacons. We're thankful for our deacons in this church. We're thankful that God raised them up. If I can be so bold, there are probably some men in this room that would make great deacons and should consider it. And I would encourage the deacons and their wives to stay in their chairs as I make that point. But every church needs godly, faithful deacons. And when that office is thriving, beloved, the church truly grows. The word of God continues to increase. The church grows, beloved, even through its growing pains. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, you are wise in all of your ways, and you are full of mercy and compassion. We thank you 
for the way that you display that to the sojourner, to the Levite, to the fatherless, to the widow, and to all of us. For we live embodied lives, and nearly every one of us in this room has benefited from the ministry of this church's deacons at one time or another. And if we have not already, at some point in time we will. We thank you particularly, Lord, for our widows, the tremendous faith that they have to sojourn alongside the people of God. And we do certainly hope and pray that they would sense that not only do you care for them as the protector of orphans and widows, but that they are loved, provided for, and protected in the arms of their church family. And Lord, if you might be pleased to use even this frail sermon to encourage the hearts of some here to consider serving in the office of deacon, then Lord, might it be, and might your name be glorified in it, and might the word of God continue to increase in our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.